0: High school was good for everybody, right? Everybody liked high school? We're all mm. on the same page? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I discovered um, what turned out to be lifelong depression in high school. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> you cool. found yourself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Truly. I was like, why is Bell and Sebastian such a good band? And I was like, oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> I, uh, well, that's a good uh,
2: way of, of introducing you. So hi, everybody. Welcome to Chorus versus Chorus. I'm Dane i'm ethan and we have on a guest today a musician an artist a friend yeah question mark <laughs>
1: <laughs> i can uh, confirm luke, friend yes,
2: can can i am just fact checking i'm just you know showing journalistic integrity uh we have on today luke henley how's it going luke
1: it's going pretty good i'm uh, slowly waking up thanks to uh, i won't give any plugs to corporate sponsors but i'm drinking a major name brand energy drink so i'm ready to go
2: you can actually name it because then they're legally forced to give us money i think that's how sponsorship (laughs) works
1: yeah 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 Uh, i've got a sugar-free rad bull here
2: (laughs) Well, I'll say a little bit about you and then maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to you to kind of introduce all the different pies that you have your fingers in. I, is that an okay phrase? Yeah, currently, yep.
1: actually, just on my dining room table, yeah. several
2: pies. <laughs> several pies. I actually was being literal. I wanted to bring that up in as delicate a way as possible. Um, you and I went to high school together and just on a on a personal level, you were the like coolest person I'd ever met and you taught me all about. Music, <laughs>
0: oh.
2: um, and you still are the coolest person I've ever met, and very much an AOL Instant Messenger friendship. I think punctuated by uh, conversations at school, but a lot of the friendship was through AIM. And just uh, as I was discovering music as like an adolescent, you provided me with a model of curiosity and uh, mm. also a model of how to talk about music. You were like one of the first people that I was able to have really like smart and also kind of like rude conversations about music with. <laughs> Just yeah. like, no that sucks that's bad
1: <laughs> yeah i was i was definitely opinionated when we were friends and sometimes i worry that i was a little you were like really into some bands and i was probably not very polite about it no, I, think,
2: <laughs> I think shitty little 13 year olds need to be told that led zeppelin is actually not that great <laughs>
1: not only are they not that great they're maybe one of the worst bands of all time
2: <laughs> yeah. well I'm gonna definitely for one of my choices chose the daddest rock of all the dad rock so I'll I'll do my penance for that but Luke is an amazing musician and always has been oh. and I'll let you talk a little bit about your projects but you have always had incredible names for all your bands <laughs> you're current probably like main project now would you say is sex headaches
1: um it's kind of funny they're all main projects that kind of slide in and out of focus Mm -hmm. depending on who's around and and ready to go but yeah no sex headaches has been my longest running project for about six years now it's kind of more from like a garage pop thing to like pretty straight ahead garage punk Yeah, so I've been working on that for a long time and then my other band Microdoser is like Another more sort name. of <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's been more of like a personal project in a way even though it's like a lot snottier and sarcastic, which mm. I mean I guess is that's pretty personal. <laughs> for me <laughs> that's more kind of like Dead Milkman worship snarky lyrics.
2: You had quite a quarantine year with that group in particular, right? Um, you put out uh, two EPs this past
1: year. No, that was, oh, that was that would another Fibber. band. Yeah, yes. Fibber is a hardcore band. Yeah, we put uh, an EP out right at the beginning of 2020, and we were like, "We're gonna go tour, and like <laughs> uh, the whole and, world yeah. is
0: in front of us." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: So yeah, uh, but then once quarantine started, we were all kind of uh, losing it and did a whole other EP that was just pieced together from home recordings.
0: Luke, I would love to get your perspective on specifically within punk and metal and hardcore, which are kind of the genres that you're playing in those sandboxes. Do you feel like there is a certain spirit of the music that generates a kind of camaraderie more than other genres, perhaps?
1: I would hope so. I think especially now there're genres that just kind of require community cuz it's like, you know, it, a lot of weirdos gravitate toward those genres and um, you know, you can't you can't be a weirdo on your own. Uh, okay. you can, uh, so it takes it takes community to thrive, I think. Yeah, I like to think too that I mean a lot of my music is very like political and politically minded and I think a lot of punk right now is uh in that mindset and so I hope that sort of pol- Politically minded, socially aware, art is inclusive and generates community rather than, Mm. you know, try to dissolve it.
2: Our theme today is just a random one that I, I pitched to Luke and they were really into it. And I've been really excited for this because it just leaves the field wide open for any song, but there are certain uh, elements that I think we'll be able to talk about <clears> in terms of the way that artists craft albums as statements, which I'm very excited about, which we're doing sequencing today. We are talking about three categories. First is best first track on an album. Uh, the second category is best. Side A, Closer, so we're looking at the world of vinyl here. And then Best Closing Track is what we're going to explore today. I don't know about you two, but did you have trouble with this? Because this was, I had a, the biggest list of nominees I've ever put together mm. for this episode. I had like 80 tracks to choose
1: from.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is there is a lot to choose from. And I think it'll depend a lot on how we define like what makes it the best for this yeah. particular spot in an album. And I think also it's really, can be difficult because when you think of sequencing, especially when we talk about our second category, which is side A closer, like that has to do with the format in which the album is created. And I mean, one of the things I really liked about uh, David Burns' book, kind of all about music, he he talks a lot about the fact that a format and a technological constraint for music creation leads to that music being different. And so, yes, you know, in the context of an album, the midpoint should have some kind of maybe climax. Are we doing it simply because we actually physically have to go and take that record and flip it over? So, you know, then after 1990, let's say, are things being made for that format? Not really,
2: because now everything's on a CD or it's digital, so it just kind of- Or with the resurgence of vinyl recently, is that being thought about now by artists?
1: Yeah, what was strange was I had to kind of refigure how I've been listening to music. Mm. Um, and I do listen to a lot of physical formats. Uh, I listen to vinyl and I listen to cassettes because they're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only <laughs> physical wanna, format I've it. released music on. So yeah, I had to think about what does each track on an album or an EP, like what placement accomplishes what? task, you know. And I think with like an opening track and a closing track, it's pretty straightforward, but yeah, yeah the the side A closer a lot of it was just me looking through my uh, digital music library and being like, "Ah, oh, that's halfway through the album. Maybe <laughs> that's, that's a- it. And then I looked <laughs> it up on like Discogs to check the actual track listing. And I, w- I was always like, oh, that would be perfect. And it was always a side B opener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Start writing letters to the artist being like, you really should have made that the closer. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, so that was difficult and it, it, it but it made me think about like what do you want to accomplish with that last feeling you get before you have to get up and t- and flip the tape or turn the record over it was a cool thought experiment and uh I'll, you know i'll get into why i chose what later but same
2: yeah um okay should we get started
1: let's dive in let's Ooh, I'm i'm nervous i don't know why
2: <laughs> you know you'll you'll uh, just drink more red bull it'll help you power through it
1: no i had to stop i'm starting to freak Keep out feeling it.
2: <laughs> if you want to get out some of the jitters you can yell at us about our choices i encourage
0: absolutely that. Actually,
2: so we're typically really nice to our guests and let them win. But in the spirit of how mean we were to each other on AOL Instant (laughs) Messenger about music taste, we're going to get dirty on this. Are you you good with that, Luke?
1: I mean, given some of y'all's picks, yeah, I'm I'm on (laughs) board. Let's do it. Okay, it's happening.
2: It's happening already. So for best first track, Ethan, why don't you kick us off? Yeah,
0: I'll put myself under the blade of the guillotine first. I chose the song Dance Yourself Clean. It's not yourself. It's Yourself Clean by the one and only LCD Sound System. LCD Sound System, very well-known, both with uh, hipsters who would like you to think that they're not well-known. Sort of like Tame Impala.
2: It's like... Oh my yeah, God! So you this probably haven't heard of this band that plays Madison Square Garden.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it it's has that. like a feature-length documentary made exactly. out of them.
2: So,
0: uh, so they are the the hipsterist of hipsters from Brooklyn, New York City, fronted by James Murphy, who is himself an enigma of hipsterdom.
2: Uh, he's a trust fund kid.
0: He is. He
2: is. Yeah, I mean, what? He's a Manhattan what... trust fund kid who uh, turned down a job to write for Seinfeld. Did you know yeah. that? Oh, I, know I
1: forgot about that. Yeah.
2: So
0: this track is very interesting one. And in my opinion, is one of the most attractive opening tracks to an album because of, I mean, it's about, it's the drop, right? It's the drop, oh, yeah. people. You it's know, the Skrill- birth of the five, drop.
2: <laughs> Skrillex, eat your heart out. Uh, it's just, just takes five minutes to get there, too. It, it takes so long
0: It's the most insane volume change you'll ever experience, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that it's also his best vocal performance. And one thing that's really interesting about that is he actually talks. He he talked in a, in an interview about creating this song, and he said basically he was he was so excited about this synth tone that he had gotten, which is kind of like his his thing right like he's Mm -hmm. just this nerdy audiophile who's all about you know this tone and that tone and can i tweak the amp and he basically said it was the highest register he'd he'd ever sung in for a song Mm -hmm. that they recorded and he had sort of promised himself he would never sing that high but he got so excited (laughs) about the synth tone that he kind of you know gave up gave up Mm -hmm. the ghost and completely blew his voice out and in order to get through recording the rest of the album, he had to take a bunch of steroids to like basically battle through like the pain and the fact that his voice was just completely shot. So I think, you know, suffering for your art, putting out a, a song that is, in my opinion, pretty iconic uh, in their catalog, and also just delivering one hell of a vocal performance, pretty hard to argue against this being a great opening track.
2: My pick for best first track is Listen to Me by Baby Huey and the Babysitters from Baby Huey's first and only album, The Baby Huey Story, The Living Legend uh, from 1970. Uh, Had either of you heard of Baby Huey?
1: I have definitely heard this because I uh, hang out in record shops. (laughs) 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 It was, yeah, it definitely, it got kind of a high profile reissue, right? It was sort of rediscovered.
2: Is it one of those kinds of stories? Did I read correctly
1: and and edit this out if I'm wrong? But I was doing some research because I was, spoiler alert, I was digging the track a lot. Mm. Um, Did I see that? Curtis Mayfield had something to do with the production on this record. He did. Yeah. He's part of the wild. Yeah. He's part of the
2: story. So baby Huey is a integral part of Chicago soul and R&B. So the song is listen to me. It's the first track on that album and he was born James Thomas Ramey in Richmond, Indiana. And something that's interesting, not interesting, horrifying is that Indiana was kind of a de facto Jim Crow state. It's like the most Southern Midwestern state. Segregation and ban on interracial dating and marriage was was in effect in his town. He formed a band with the band that would become Baby Huey and the Babysitters and kind of escaped to this oasis of Chicago, which is funny because Chicago was very racist, uh, as Martin Luther King uh, pointed out. But it was just like night and day for him and his band members to leave from this Indiana town and to be able to like sit wherever they wanted in a movie theater. Mm. But the big thing about Baby Huey is that he had a glandular issue and he weighed 400 pounds. And according to Aaron Cohen, uh, who wrote the book uh, Move On Up, which is about Chicago soul and black power in the 60s and 70s. It's a great read. There's not any kind of easily accessible live footage of him performing, but he was this 400 pound man who had moves like James Brown. Whoa. Whoa he was quite light on his toes and would do you know splits and dance across the stage and stuff like that which would just be an incredible show and you know he has this very like powerful tenor truly like the the name of the album is the living legend like he is uh, a legend in front of you who their peers were and kind of breaking down what this song sounds like. Uh, their peers were the Rotary Connection, which we've talked about on this show before, which was Minnie Ripperton's sort of launching mm-hmm. point. And the band that played on Muddy Waters' uh, Electric Mud album. And they were kind of Chicago's answer to Sly and the Family Stone. And so when you listen to this song, listen to me, it sounds a bit like James Brown. There's like vamping and call and response stuff. And he's you know, yelling at the, there's not really like a form to the song. He's yelling at the band, you know, do it again, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But mixed in with kind of like Sly and the Family Stone, I want to take you higher, a little bit of blood, sweat and tears or like the band Chicago, kind of mixing those those influences. Yeah, they were discovered by Donnie Hathaway and Curtis Mayfield. Like Luke mentioned, Curtis Mayfield was the god of Chicago soul. And interestingly, Curtis Mayfield put a strain on the babysitters because he only wanted baby Huey. He only wanted to sign the 400 pound James Brown. It put a lot of strain on on them. And he had a childhood friend in the band, and they didn't talk for months. Basically, they got together long enough to record the pieces of this album, The Living Legend, and Baby Huey starts getting into heroin. And, you know, combined with with the weight and the, the heroin and the drinking, uh, he died at 26. Interestingly, what happens is he dies and then the babysitters keep playing and they play with a young teenager, uh, Shaka Khan. Hmm, crazy. Interestingly who then goes on to form uh, a band with a name that I love almost as much as Sex Headaches, uh, Rufus. The reason it's such a good opening track is he does the funniest scream I've ever heard. And then a horn section comes in and that's like what I want to hear at the beginning of an album. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. There are first tracks that are like the best song or the thing that you like the most being front loaded. But I picked this because a good opening track has to announce its intent, get you in the world of the album in a really exhilarating way. And I think that this does
1: it. Yeah, it it forces you to get on your feet. If you're sitting down during that track, you're fucking up, you know?
2: Truly. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you have a glandular <laughs> issue, it gets you up dancing like James yeah. Brown. Yeah.
1: Can I, can I take the ball and and run with it? Um, Tell us
2: about uh, your choice for best first track by, uh, to, to quote Jack Black in School of Rock, motorhead.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, it's funny. You, uh, you said something that I was going to lead with, which is to discuss the first track as a statement of intent. I, I think that's very accurate to what a good opener should be. And like I said earlier, this came to me immediately yeah. because not only is this as, I mean, first of all, we're talking self-titled track, self-titled debut. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that.
2: Yeah, I love which it when bands so do that.
1: so bold. And it's like, yeah, I could have gone Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath, but as far as statement of intent, this doesn't just tell you what the rest of the album is going to sound like. It literally sets the tone for the entire career of Motorhead. And, you know, they'd get like harder maybe later because the debut I love for being kind of just a rock and roll album which lemmy always said you know we're not we're no metal band we're a rock and roll band. um <laughs> uh, which i love i love that lemmy also was just like oh yeah they just he wanted to sound like little richard and you're like then really? <laughs> why does it sound like this <laughs> uh, yeah he was obsessed with little richard and you think, I mean, I didn't prepare nearly as much historical context for my pick, Dane. So, uh... no one does.
2: I'm,
0: not, <laughs> I'm just fucking weird and annoying. So, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, not all of us read uh, 350 page nonfiction tomes about a very specific genre. But that's yeah. our, you and I, we're in the same boat. You'd be like, um,
2: I like it.
1: <laughs> I like it. Uh, let me play the bass pretty damn good. <laughs> um... <laughs> Thinking contextually, though, like, Lemmy got kicked out of uh, Hawkwind for being a motorhead, for being on speed all the time, mm. and then just is like, fine, that's who I am. I'm going to make the speediest, most amphetamine-fueled, just, like, toughest three-piece band ever. Yeah. And that bass line at the beginning, and you hear that just the drums getting ready to go, and it's like, there's oh, not it's... a screech, but, like, just that build-up, and then, oh, man. It's like a motor. It is. It's, it's like, like a motor revving up, yeah. and then they just they that momentum carried them through decades. It's mm. just like it's wild to me, and it's also it's not a punk record, but it shows up nineteen seventy seven, the year punk broke, mm-hmm. and I think kind of shuts everybody else down. Like I, like you, you listen to the Clash and Ramones, and like yeah, they're great they're great blah 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 <laughs> yeah. but like yeah motorhead is just like an m60 machine gun just just lays it all out I don't shooting
2: know. joey ramon in the face <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: shooting, shooting johnny rotten and that's so yeah. interesting that you're gonna say that because like i associate like with the ace of spades and stuff i think of them as like a judas priest kind of like 70s metal band yeah and this was like this was punk with solos. This was the sounded to yeah. me like more intense Ramones with a solo in it.
1: It not only created a sound for that band. Contemporary hardcore still uses the the D beat, you know, the which is like the Motorhead beat and like Discharge, you know, was they were the ones that heard what Motorhead were doing and kind of put it directly into punk. I mean i can't think of another genre that's based on a drum beat uh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah the fact that motorhead could create something that was so so signature to them but also like almost every contemporary hardcore band that i listen to you can tie back to motorhead sound as well i it, that this was the easy one for me what else are you gonna do you know <laughs> yeah. it's motorhead come on what else are you gonna do the ones Hi. you guys picked <laughs> <laughs>
2: you got me (laughs) um who gets it best first track i mean ethan's was was a classic even though it was hipster bullshit (laughs) i might
0: disqualify it i mean i i would say motorhead i think like like luke mentioned statement of intent to to just have a have an opening not just track to an album but opening track to a career that is then like yeah (laughs) yeah i I mean
1: it's
2: kind of hard to go wrong I would agree with Motorhead. What do you think, Luke?
1: Yeah, I'm going to vote for myself because uh, I believe <laughs> in <it>. Lemmy. <laughs> <laughs> I I think everybody had great picks, though. I have a really vivid memory of hearing Dance Yourself Clean for the first time. And uh, I do like a track that it starts and you're kind of like, what's this like dumb little like... <laughs> <laughs> and you're like kind of not into it. And then all of a sudden it just... bam. Yeah. But I mean, if Dance Yourself Clean and Motorhead as songs were like fighting in some sort of corporeal form, like forget it. Motorhead 100. wins by a country <laughs> Motorhead mile. <win. laughs> Motorhead would
2: kneecap James Murphy's little trust funds ass.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah with with a Jack and Coke in the yeah. in one hand. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Easy takedown. <laughs> All right. So that was Luke with one point for best first track. Uh, Luke, get us started with your choice for the best end of side A.
1: I brought a prop for this one. Oh, yeah. love it. A prop meaning the the, the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I said, I, strug- I really struggled with this one. And part of it too is like, you know you think of best right what's the best side a closer Mm. ever of all Mm. time and so i was trying to shy away from like contemporary music Mm. because i feel like we all tend to do that when we talk about the best but then i was like you know what some of the best music ever is being made right now Mm. and especially punk That plus this is something I own on physical format. Mm. So I have flipped this record many times, but it's a New York punk band called Pinocchio. I don't have nearly enough context for this band. (laughs) The song, yeah, it's a seven inch. That was the other thing. I I don't know, a side eight closer on a seven inch. Maybe it's just the frequency with how often you have to flip a seven Mm. inch. It's like, I've probably just listened to it more. (laughs) (laughs) It makes you um,
2: think more about the flipping experience. Mm, this a good so point.
1: Yeah. yeah. A good friend of mine that I used to make music with and listen to a lot of records with, and a lot of it was seven inches, you know, as much as I love the album, you know, the kind of music I make wouldn't be anywhere without iconic seven inches, you know? Yeah. So the, the track name, I don't think I said, it's called behind you by Pinocchio. They're part of this contemporary crop of New York bands, this record label, Toxic State Records is really just like, kind of putting out the gold standard in my book of hardcore. But this band is like, they're really special. They blend so much different stuff together really effortlessly. I love a seven inch that can make A statement in 10 minutes you know Uh yeah just it's driving the Uh the vocals kill me they're so good really fiery really cutting the band's tight it kind of goes all over the place uh genre wise but still is like cohesive I'm still not sure I know what the function of a side A closer is, but this just felt right to me. (laughs) Yeah,
2: It's maybe just something personally that you have sat with having flipped the record so much. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It revs up like motorhead at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It has that same kind of like. Yeah. I
1: think all of my picks kind of, kind of have like a vampy
0: rev up feel to it. Yeah. Good, I, I, I like your point of like efficiency. I mean, I, I think a lot of my last pick sneak preview is of an era where efficiency was thrown out, out. the window. Out. Oh,
2: <laughs> I yeah. love it when an album is 38 minutes. Yeah. When I look and see, and it's 38 minutes. I get really excited when I look and see in an album's 54 minutes. I'm like, this is a bummer. Throw it in the <laughs> trash. My
1: You're like stuff. Wayne coin. Couldn't you? <laughs> Damn it. Wayne, How? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, s- speaking of, uh, not short songs. Maybe Dane, you want to talk about your pick?
2: Yeah, I came in with the big guns here. So my choice for best side A closer is Marquee Moon by television. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I I thought it would have been really apparent to both of you what the side A closer meant. To me, it's like the act two break of a musical where there's an intermission, right? It's that f- it, it needs to be a showstopper. That's kind of how I envisioned it. Another couple I was considering was Someone Save My Life Tonight by Elton John, which closes out Side A of Captain Fantastic, which is like such a showstopper song. Mm. And then uh, Desire by Talk Talk off of uh, Spirit of Eden. It's just something that uh, either emotionally or just in terms of the, I don't know, the bigness of the song, like knocks the wind out of you. If you can remember like sitting through any kind of musical high school or otherwise, that feeling of the big... Showstopper, you know the lights go up and you're winded, and then you go get your uh, your milk duds or whatever um, <laughs> or your scotch. So that's that's how I defined <laughs> it. I think Marky Moon is the ultimate side A closer. It's the fulcrum of their entire legend as a band. You know, it's not a short song like Ethan mentioned. It's a it's a ten minute explanation of what they are. If yeah. uh, if you need to explain to someone who television is, you just you put this song on and then they'll they'll know you won't be missing any details yeah it is uh late 70s east village manhattan big bang of punk one of the pillars of cbgb the the club in the East Village, where people playing there were the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads, Patti Smith, the Misfits, the Cramps, and Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And also something I didn't know is that on Sundays in the 80s was Hardcore Day. And <laughs> oh. uh, the Beastie Boys would play there back when they were a hardcore band. And yeah. uh, the Cro-Mags and Bad Brains would all play. So I didn't know that there was oh, yeah. that little addendum to hardcore history at CB.
0: This TV. is pre, uh, pre-Mimosas. Yeah. On Sunday brunch. I
2: think it's like a je- like a diesel jeans outlet or something now which is like <laughs> so, uh, so depressing on It's a bummer. <laughs> um, it's like four dimensionally depressing. <laughs> um, so the Ramones were the sound of punk I would say but television were the idea of it. Where the Ramones took girl group surf rock and stripped it down to its essentials and did no solos and did one minute songs and that was the sound that bloomed into punk and hardcore and
1: so it's like uh, it's punk for grad students it's punk for <laughs> grad students yeah them in the talking heads right yeah so I think- which i i don't mean that in a i love television i don't mean that in a shitty way but like yeah ramones weren't gonna ever put out a 10 minute long mm-hmm. <laughs> with like me, weird like- ass
2: guitar solo. they're <laughs> yeah. they're punk for people with many hardcover copies of anthony Trollope novels or something like that or uh uh Guy Debord or something like that. <laughs> um yeah, I think in the same way later one, another one of my favorite bands, the Minutemen, oh, as yeah. what Minutemen did in the eighties, is like this doesn't really sound like punk, but it is important to the development of punk because of what it was saying, which is that punk is it's a space to like break rules and be playful mm. and challenge the audience in terms of what they expect from rock music. television is very respected but I kind of wish they're more influential like actually that it inspired a fleet of bands that like actually wanted to sound like them like maybe math rock tries to sound like television but I dream of a of a reality where they are they're the ones who went to England instead of the Ramones and then there was a wave of bands
1: that sounded like television it would be it would be fun I feel like now a ton of bands sound like television really like it, I think it's one of those influences that slept for a few decades and then like, which I don't know. I, I have to say a lot of people say like the Strokes took a lot of influence mm. from television. I don't hear it. I don't hear it, it. I don't I don't hear it at all. Um,
0: I think it's I think it's the guitar tone.
1: That, and, that's a yeah. That's, and that's, uh,
0: be it. that's to me probably the reason why they didn't have a lot of influence on other bands at the time because if you're in the late 1970s, you're either playing music that is going towards punk and hardcore. Or you're playing music that is going towards something more experimental, let's say. And they ha- they sat right in between these two things, having
2: 10-minute songs that were kind of punk songs, right? Kind of but jazz, yeah. in, more jazz influence and psychedelia influence, but kind of just absorbing through osmosis the punk. Right. But it's not punk because the guitar
0: doesn't sound like punk guitar. And it's certainly not psychedelia or experimental music because the guitar doesn't sound like that, right? It doesn't sound like, I mean, we'll talk about Pink Floyd in, in, in a bit, but like, doesn't sound like Pink Floyd, right? It doesn't it sounds sound like, like anything. This, yeah. It doesn't <laughs> sound like anything. And it's because it's this really dry, really jangly almost kind of guitar sound. And that was, that had no home. And I think yeah, that's yeah. probably to me, it's a, it's a guitar rock band. But without a guitar rock sound,
2: they were using the wrong paintbrush for the mm-hmm. wrong kind you know, right. for a, a kind of painting. Stephen Thomas Erlewine on All Music said, while the guitarist Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd liked to jam, they didn't follow the accepted rock structures for improvisation. They removed the blues while retaining the raw energy of garage rock, adding complex lyrical solo lines that recalled both jazz and rock. And then uh, a line I've always liked from Pitchfork is that this album recasted virtuosity as a function of the brain, not the fingers. Kind of this like naive repurposing of what a guitar solo could do.
1: Yeah, no, I like that about the, cause man, I, I hate just like brainless shredding.
2: Like Steve Vai, like yeah.
1: Steve, well, Steve Vai gets points for uh, working with Zappa, but, um, but that was Zappa's brain and Vai's fingers, right. yeah, I think. Um, cause Zappa tells you what to play and you play it. Yeah. Um, you shut up and you play your guitar. But it's like, you know, as much of a like metalhead as I am, like, you know, I think of like Carrie King is like the absolute like worst. <laughs> His solos make no sense. They're yes. like not in the same room as the rest of Slayer songs. You yeah. know, you can't sing
0: a Dragon Force guitar solo. <laughs> no, you know, you you, That's can, certain, you can sing, yeah. the, you <laughs> can sing every single guitar part in this track. Yeah. And that's why it's to maybe make a little more practical the idea of like, you know, using your brain for this kind of guitar work, like it's just that you can sing it. It's not somebody just going, let me play all the notes I possibly can in the shortest period of time. And it really does to me
2: just feel like they put this thing at the end of side A to wind you so that Mm -hmm. when the the record stops and you realize you have to pick it back up and flip it, you (laughs) are kind of sitting there for a moment because you're just you don't know what just happened to you. And that to me is the uh, is a is a great side A closer.
1: I have to say, though, I mean, it must be said it simply must be. (laughs) This song is completely blown out of the water by the side B opener. Elevation is like, oh, yeah, that's the track for me on that album, which, uh, you know, I've only ever really listened to this album on CD. So it's interesting to think about I probably would feel differently about weighing those two songs together if I had that intermission right um but yeah it's like I don't know I'm tempted every time I put this album on just to skip to Elevation Elevation. but I was glad to sit with this song and I mean it's a great song to sit with it and not immediately skip to the other song I like
0: let's talk about a different vibe my choice very different best. best side a closer is Diamonds on the Soles of Our Shoes by Paul Simon, which is either a song that people like or people fucking hate. So I'm sure that the two of you have a feeling one way or the other. But uh, Dang, you're
1: shaking your head.
0: <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold on. Just wait. OK, so I one of the reasons I, I chose this song is actually because Paul Simon was in the news very recently. Uh, he sold his entire catalog to Sony. I didn't know that. Uh, so now Sony has the rights to every single Paul Simon song ever, which... Just a little fun fact. But Paul Simon, you know Paul Simon. I thought Simon. you were gonna
2: say he's in the news because like some roller coaster operator didn't let him go on a ride.
0: Cause he was too <laughs> oh, short. Brutal. That's the other thing you know about Paul Simon is he's a, a tiny man. He is one of two people I will be talking about who is from Newark, New Jersey. Simon and Garfunkel started in the 1950s, which is crazy. He's been around making music for that long. He went solo in 1970 and is just kind of one of the greatest American singer-songwriters. I would argue, and this is probably a controversial opinion, but I would argue he's up there alongside Stevie Wonder for, for being a musician who could write really accessible music that had a great deal of musical complexity
2: underneath it. I think when you think about like the songwriter in American history, you think of like Carole King and Jerry Goffin and Paul Simon and yeah, right. Like he's just that kind of uh, uh, or songwriter, like the yeah. the archetypal American songwriter.
1: Yeah, definitely. You mean At- you mean like pop songwriter?
0: Yeah I, yeah, I would say so. Stuff that's on the radio, you know.
1: Right. So not yeah, because I'm you know I definitely am, I tend more toward like. Like, you know, Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, like, the factory model putting out
1: hits, you know. Cranking out the hits. Cranking out the hits. Although this was, wasn't this, like, after Paul Simon, people were just kind of like, he's done. That guy's not going to put out anything good ever again. Yeah. And (laughs) then,
0: you know, he puts out Graceland, which becomes kind of one of the most critically acclaimed albums of of his career. And I chose this song because I think it's a great song. And I think that it's the first time on this album where he actually states his intent in terms of what this, what this album and what this music is supposed to be. So for those of you who don't know, Graceland is an album that he made in South Africa with South African musicians during apartheid. And it was very controversial and continues to be controversial because some people saw it as he was exploiting musicians in going there during a time when they didn't have equal rights to participate in their own society. A lot of people would argue that actually he brought to the fore all of these amazing musicians who are being trampled upon by their government and their inability to participate in their local economy in a lot of ways. And I think that in the first few tracks of this album, you hear sounds that to American audiences at the time were just completely foreign to them. I mean, literally and metaphorically, but you don't connect necessarily that these sounds are from a particular musical culture and place. And this track opens up with Zulu. I mean, the the first lyrics are Zulu lyrics.
2: She's a rich girl; she don't try to hide it. Diamonds
0: on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket. Empty it's a really pocket. good way to close the front side of the album because it's showing, hey, here's all this stuff I've introduced you to. Now let me show you it in its like most pure form, and I really appreciated that. And I think it's a nice way to transition into the rest of the album. And I mean, I know that you two are sitting here with some raised eyebrows. So, you know, maybe (laughs) it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think this song is a jam.
2: I will say the, um, I think there are multiple angles by which you can defend Paul Simon's choice to make this album. Especially if you just Google a list of the musicians who just played Mm -hmm. concerts in south africa and just took money from the apartheid government right uh curtis mayfield unfortunately being one of them
1: curtis man, <laughs> Curtis, come on
2: man uh if you just look at a list it's like oh those are uh those people are jerks yep <laughs> queen played a concert and brian may was like we're not political we're queen it's like shut up
1: <laughs>
2: stick to astrophysics and being good at guitar brian may <laughs> I, mean, I think I think, you know, there are there's a, a whole podcast worth of conversation to have about this decision that Paul Simon made. But I think it's far more complicated and worthy of defense than what a lot of other musicians were doing mm-hmm. at the time. I don't mm-hmm. know. I also don't like this album and I never have. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Paul Simon. I adore uh, Paul, but I've never. It's so dangerous. Can I ask why? Luke, Is it- what, do you, what do you think, Luke?
1: I I also have never had any connection to this album and I've tried, I feel like I try once a year. I'm like, maybe now that I'm like old, maybe I'll like it. Um, Okay, you guys, to be fair,
0: you know, I just mentioned how Dane dragged me out of my Maroon 5 phase and my John Mayer phase. Like, this is in me. This is of me. This album is part of my soul. I, I didn't listen to it until I was in my twenties, but it was always there.
1: Yeah, my heart. Yeah. Well, sure, and I mean, maybe that's part of my. Uh, my like I I listen to this, and I think I can only think of like you know what the logical endpoint of of this blending of all these styles is like rusted root in the. Early
2: <laughs> People say she's crazy. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes.
1: Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. People can love this album. I get why people love this album. Same, same. Um, it's definitely not one of those albums where I'm like, ah, that, that album sucks and people who listen to it are idiots or anything like that. But mm. like for me, it just- <laughs> Wiping sounds... my sweat
0: off my brow here.
1: <laughs> it just sounds like one of those albums that has weirdly made in quotes, world music, mm-hmm. this bizarrely homogenized genre. Yeah. I mean, it's. And I think that's, one, same, like, I think that's weird. It's one step Dave from Matthews Dave Matthews,
0: Matthews Band, too. I, yes, yes, Dane. Yeah. We said at the same time, it's one step away from Dave Matthews, and yeah. that's the problem is that I think we have a, such a strong association as listeners to that homogenization of like quote world music. And my point that I'm trying to make is, I mean, I can see that argument in this album being that, but I think that this song in particular is a statement of, I am going to show you. Here is this. You know, genre of music, in the, musical yeah. culture, here is my musical influence that I'm coming with, and now let's put it together into the package. And I, I think will, it's a statement of like, this is my intent with this music.
2: I will sure. say I don't believe in blaming the trailblazers, you know, the innovators mm-hmm. for the bad imitations. Right. No, like, no, no. I don't blame Nirvana for uh, Nickelback. Puddle of mud. You know, <laughs> I thank I thank Nirvana for Puddle of Mud. Nirvana,
1: um, I thank you for Puddle of Mud.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like the majority opinion on Graceland is that it is a classic and that it's like cool to like. But I. And I love Paul Simon. I love all of Simon and Garfunkel. I love "There Goes Rhyme and Simon" and the uh, the Puffy Coat self titled album. I love Paul Simon. I love him. Yeah. I just uh, okay.
1: Dial it down. I, <laughs> I
2: would I would die for Paul Simon. <laughs> no, I, just, I really yeah. don't
1: think you should. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's doing okay. Um, I I just have never. Uh, it just sounds so dated.
0: Uh, so whose song reigns supreme it's Mine. Like, well okay then
1: i think yeah i think we're all gonna defend our own picks on this one
0: i mean i i'm i'm with marky moon that song is like one of my favorite songs of all time so it's kind of hard to say. you know what say.
1: y'all sound like you're just afraid of the new
2: <laughs> we <laughs> are canon reinforcers luke
1: yeah i know that's why i had to <laughs> that's why i had to come in here and shake things up and tell you that there's still music being made that's not from the uh 70s and 80s
2: yeah it's called kanye west (laughs) and that's it that's that's the canon baby um sorry luke marquee moon wins but we can all agree that paul simon loses (laughs) yeah Okay. Uh, I imagine this best final track is maybe a little easier to define. Just like what buttons up a good album best. Uh, mm-hmm. Ethan, start us off with your wonderful pick for a final track on an album that I think is uh, 50 hours long. <laughs> it's approximately.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this album came out in an era where every hip hop and R&B album was at least an hour and a half. And this just fits into it. So the song I chose is Tell Him by the one and only Lauren Hill from her one and only studio album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Just like Paul Simon in many ways, but most importantly, is from, uh, from <laughs> Newark, <North laughs> New Jersey as well. Both from Newark. Oh, York. Okay, okay.
1: Okay, okay, okay. That's the thing
0: that makes them the same. Um, uh, I, this is going to be story time. So, Lauren Hill is one of the story, most yeah. influential rappers of all time people listening now who are who are like contemporary music fans probably know lauren hill because lauren hill's been sampled a lot most notably recently by drake and that's because drake just bites her style drake took the Mm. melodic singing rapping thing from lauren hill and that's what drake does so lauren hill again from newark uh grew up in new jersey joined the fugees was an actress Right? Yes, absolutely. Like a child actress, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and and musically started her career through the Fugees. I didn't actually know that this was one of the reasons why the Fugees broke up, but her and Wyclef Jean had a very tumultuous romantic involvement that kind Uh-oh. of led to the split of the Fugees.
2: And also, she thought that they were sellouts, right? Like I think that's what uh, Lost Ones is about has a lot of grievances right yeah oh a
0: a ton of grievances and that that kind of plays into her i don't want to say downfall but a lot of like the unfortunate things that happened to her post this album so the fuji split up she puts out the miseducation of lauren hill and it is just a massive supernova hit um and rightfully so i mean it's yes approximately 30 hours in length but it's this beautiful meditation on love. And uh, as with other albums of this era, there's skits throughout it. But the skits are really, like, kind of beautiful and heartfelt. They're not oh, just, the like, skits really are corny so good things. They're yeah. essentially a classroom of high school-age kids, and their teacher is just asking them questions about love. Do you think you're too young to be in love? And they all go, no. And they talk about what does it mean to be in love? And what, how can you tell when somebody loves you? And um, all of the songs kind of are about that theme. It's either about, you know, Lauren Hill singing about loving romantically, loving as a parent, loving God, a lot of like religious tones. The song that I chose, Tell Him, is the is the last track on this album. And it's the last studio track on the only studio album that we get from Warren Hill. Because what happens afterwards is she becomes this enormously successful public figure and essentially drops out of the public eye. She doesn't do interviews. She fires her manager, emerges a few years later to do this MTV Unplugged set, which is I'll describe it like this. It was somebody who was clearly not in a good place and was not ready to be engaging with an audience, especially a global audience. When she recorded this, she was so objectified and so exploited as an artist and people were so hungry for her and, and wanted, you know, her to be the center of attention. And she didn't want that, you know, to to your point earlier, Dane, like, she thought that the Fuji sold out, like she didn't want to be the center of attention. She didn't want to be a global superstar. And because of that, she had a lot of struggles with mental health. She had a lot of understandable struggles with like being a black woman in the music industry. She really, really struggled with it. Understandably, but just really struggled with it, and um, I think this song as like a closing song to me, a closing track on an album is supposed to linger. It's supposed to be kind of like an aftertaste for you, or a, some kind of memory of like a the day you spent listening to this album. And I feel like this is one of those tracks that just like stays with you, and it's a really peaceful kind of way to end this album. And I guess if you will, like a career. Now that I'm old.
2: Our culture does not accept artists who just quit while they're ahead. Like it is, it is unacceptable to us. Like, yeah. To kill a mockingbird. (laughs) We have to squeeze one more novel out of a senile old woman or like. Yeah. I mean, she, she talks about
0: so much in her lyrics and again, the, the unplugged set that she did, which is just full of like, you know, forgotten lyrics and half baked songs and, so much of what she talks about and kind of rants 15, about if you will
2: minute rants, yeah.
0: um is exploitation and just what you know the machine wants to be fed and she just feeling like she can't get out from under it so yeah uh lauren hill a tragic a tragic story with a, a beautiful reminder of the talent that is still around and hopefully we'll make some more music
2: Let me talk about another album that I'm sure Luke won't shit talk. Uh, <laughs> uh, my pick for the best- Did you put
1: this on just to piss me off? <laughs> you
2: know, no, it's a genuine pick, but it I, I would be lying if it didn't occur to me that it would make for some interesting uh, conversation here. <laughs> um, this is definitely my most like dad rock, Rolling Stone choice on this podcast ever. I chose yeah. uh, the last track of "Dark Side of the Moon" by Pink Floyd, which no one's
1: heard of. I no think one's... you're. I think this is you're making this personal. I think that's what this was. I think this is contentious out of the gate. Oh, when yeah. you
0: when you pick this, Dane, did you just kind of giggle?
2: You're like, no, I'm serious. I okay. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> just I'm, not, go, riffing. Just go, just I'm go. not riffing anymore. I um. I still listen to "Dark Side of the Moon." It's one of a handful of like dumb, stupid, hot topic bands that i liked when i was 12 that i still think holds up i don't really like other pink floyd as much but i will always put on dark side of the moon because i just think it's really good and i think um it is absolutely cinematic in the way i was talking about and that it is uh, very much worth listening to front to back uh, for the experience of it Um, and it also happens to have each individual track like you could listen to out of context and really enjoy it um i won't explain their history because i'm not i'm not rolling stone just just google it yeah but uh this was i mean what's so interesting about pink floyd is that they had sid barrett who is this very like beautiful charismatic songwriting genius and they had their phase where they were the preeminent like psychedelic band yeah and then Sid Barrett did a lot of acid and had a debilitating mental health crisis and experienced uh, psychosis for the rest of his life and had to quit, kind of had to quit, also kind of got shoved out by the band. And there's a really sad song that he wrote, last album he was on, he wrote one of the songs when he used to be the only songwriter called Jug Band Blues. And it's like basically not so veiled, him saying like, I guess you guys don't want me here, bye you know like I'm being shoved out but what's so fascinating about Pink Floyd is that then Sid Barrett leaves and he's their golden ticket he's their he's the face of the band he's the songwriter he's the he's the visual uh mastermind and then Pink Floyd they want to keep going and their label's like what the fuck are you talking about you don't have your Kurt Cobain or whatever right like you you don't have your person we're not gonna And then against all odds, they then went to not only outsell and outperform like their earlier material, but they outsold like everybody ever. (laughs) Like Dark Side of the Moon, I think just stays on the billboard charts, just decades and decades and decades. And it's not an easy album, but it is. it it takes all of the avant-garde pretensions of prog rock and it squeezes it into uh, pop music. It's a pop Mm -hmm. album.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very easy album. You think it's like a challenging album?
2: No, I think it... Has It takes the pedigree of the challengingness of pro- English prog rock and it communicates it to a mass audience, which I think is, is is an admirable thing. I think it's hard to do. But I bring up Sid Barrett just because, like, the reason Eclipse, I love so much. It's my favorite Pink Floyd song, an excellent closing track just, like, divorced from context because it's very operatic and grand and it's clearly the end of something. The big thing about the album is that it's creating like opera out of the mundane. Mm. It's songs about time and being bored and money and breathing and running. Just really like boring, mundane things trying to find, I don't know, philosophical depth out of them. And then like the last two songs are about Sid Barrett. Mm. It's kind of like a double feature suite. And the whole thing, the floodgates kind of open. And in this last song where the whole album has been about mundane things is suddenly it is pretentious. It is literally now saying like all that you touch, all that you see, all that you feel. It's trying to like, I don't know, restate the thesis almost in this more cosmic way. And I really just enjoy that restraint that they've been showing. And so it wraps up all the themes that were so kind of underplayed throughout the whole thing in this really emotional climactic way and it's tied to their I don't know guilt and shame uh and maybe denial about how they treated Sid Barrett uh kind of just thinking about the friend that they lost and kind of screwed over they wrap up the whole album on that on that note Dark Side of the Moon, just it just has this staying power with me. I would say I don't know why, but I do know why. It's just like, it's such a fun experience to listen to it. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And uh, they end the experience so well. That's why it's my pick.
0: This song as a closing song has more like closing power, if you will, than the song that I chose, Tell Him. Uh, because it doesn't need to be in a much broader context beyond the context of the album. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's just good, period. Yeah. Like, there's not much more to say about it. Like, this album is good, and there's a reason why it's on <laughs> T-shirts everywhere. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, Dane, I feel like you brought me on to this podcast and <laughs> chose this song because you want me to play the heel. <laughs> we need uh, a <laughs> I have probably told you since we met every day how much I hate Pink Floyd. (laughs) Um, They represent to me like, I mean, I don't believe in the idealism of the 60s. I think that's been so distorted and corporatized. And I think Pink Floyd is like the perfect representation of a band that has just been like, and honestly maybe not as much with this album, maybe more so with what came after. Mm -hmm. But like, doesn't deliver on the promise of people telling me that this band is important. Right. So does
2: a song like this, does it do nothing for you or does it annoy you?
1: It annoys me. I
2: I'm like eating this up with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pink Floyd has just always been a really irritating band to me. I don't know. I mean, it's funny because like you bring up Prague and pop and it's like, yeah, they are making Prague music more accessible. Mm -hmm. But it still is like I almost feel like it's more in the vein of like Grateful Dead to me. Oh, really? like, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, like it's just how it hits my ear. Is just like, let's just let's just dick around and let's like... noodle. <laughs> <laughs> Which like I guess couldn't I guess that doesn't fit for this song because like miraculously this is a Pink Floyd song that comes in at two minutes and ten yep. seconds. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yeah, it's just I think I already said it, how I'll say it is like, I think Pink Floyd is one of those bands that's presented to you as canon prestige rock band. And I just, it's always felt hollow to me. So I think we
2: each picked three things that to my mind I had defined as the final track. So Ethan's was the kind of like the calm after the storm. Mine was like the big, I don't know, operatic climax. And then yours, I really like and i think also hits that other kind of note but i'll i'll let you talk about it
1: um so this one has i do have some context for this um the band is in solitude and the track is uh in most negretto and they were a swedish band a, a swedish metal metal band but they let's compare this swedish gothy metal band to Lauren Hill. This was their final track yes. of their final album. Mm-hmm. And they were interesting to me because when they first hit, they were basically like a King Diamond, Merciful Fate, 80s throwback, gritty, melodic, operatic stadium metal mm-hmm. sound. Uh, and they did two albums kind of in that style. And I, I thought they were fine and then this album sister came out in 2013 maybe 2012 and it's i mean i love when a band does a switcheroo of their sound and this album the whole thing it's eight tracks first of all mm. eight track full length <clears throat> beautiful oh yeah it's even though this album is pretty it's pretty long it's a pretty dense listen as i mean this tracks like what eight minutes at least yeah. mm-hmm. it's a
2: they pulled a purple rain
1: yeah yeah <laughs> It's the same band, but it, it's like, they have these like theatrical goth in the best way, mixed with like stadium swagger, mixed with black metal, mournful, melodic sensibilities. It hits, and it almost sounds like a Pink Floyd song, which is kind mm. of hilarious. <laughs> it's got this jammy, like it hits that like bow. Actually, it's more like King Crimson almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, real like sultry. And then it uh, drops into this like hammer riff. whole album sounded completely different from everything else they'd ever done and this track just sounds to me like a band that knows how good this closing track is and Mm. it's also just like literally after that was just like thank you and good night like Mm. we are never going to make anything that rules this hard ever again so we're just gonna quit
2: yeah they ascend (laughs) to the flying saucer
1: (laughs) yeah But this is one of those closing tracks that I actually like, I will just go to this closing track sometimes because it just encapsulates everything about what they were doing at that time. That was not only better than anything else they'd done, but I think like really kind of put the pin in a very specific era of like theatrical metal that had melody. Like it's kind of scorched earth in that kind of genre. It's like this track's just a monster and it ends on just that like, that riff at the end could just go forever
0: And to your point about like putting a kind of cherry on top of like a whole genre when I first heard this I, it really reminded me of like same era of like Mastodon where yeah, yeah. it's like very melodic very dirgy
2: Ethan, I love anytime there's metal on the show. You're like Mastodon. No,
0: no, no, no. <laughs> this this sounds like Mastodon. This doesn't just sound like you know Anthrax. Mastodon. Or like it just Mastodon,
1: the Pink Floyd of metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Everybody gets it. I just yeah, I really was Luke. You used the word operatic, and I felt that that was very appropriate. Very big, very grand. Yeah, that's
1: my pick.
2: Nice, love it.
0: Yeah, very much
2: for that uh, category. I would maybe give it to Ethan because one, I love Lauren Hill, and two, let's give one to Ethan. I'll then take we one, I'll get a point. Give me a point. <laughs> give me a point. How do you feel? Does that
1: disappoint you, Luke? I didn't come here to win, I came here to be correct. <laughs> 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 History will prove me right.
2: Yeah, well. Much like uh, how the Bachelor <laughs> franchise lets the people who lost go to an island for a spinoff and get a second chance, you'll go to Chorus versus Chorus uh, Paradise Island to yeah. try to redeem yourself uh, <laughs> for this humiliating tie.
1: Yeah, this, yeah. Nothing worse than a than a tie, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: just the worst. Nothing more infuriating than a tie among friends. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um no well 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 picked well fought i uh i don't feel cheated in the slightest (laughs) these were fun songs
2: this was a fun theme i love the art of the album luke thank you for playing with us
1: thank you for having me thanks so much yeah this was really fun and um, super duper fun
2: i uh, would like you to let our listeners know where they can find you social media wise and also like how to support you like where to buy your music what is the best way for you
1: Everything's on Bandcamp digitally right now. I'm working on getting a cassette of Sucks Headaches, which is the most recent Sex Headaches EP. Um, But yeah, sexheadaches.bandcamp.com, microdoser sf.bandcamp.com, that's Santa Fe, and fibber.bandcamp.com. I'm just, you know, I'm constantly writing. So there's probably new microdoser and Sex Headaches on the horizon. Sweet. Um, forward maybe to it. something else. Maybe there's other projects. I Heck don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe
2: you'll write a song about the humiliating experience of being on this show. <laughs>
1: I I felt great.
2: Yeah, no, I felt I felt, or, right I felt good too. I just have a lot of shame for my Judaism. Um, <laughs> well thanks, Luke. It was great. Thank to you. Thank
1: out. you both so much. Thanks.